0: Apparently, I don't read like a lot of people who love books, and I feel like I read like a lot of people's dads, maybe instead.
1: <laughs> hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 162. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. This week, I had the pleasure of hearing back from Episode 154 guest Ruth Ann Daphne about how she liked my recommendations. Thank you, Ruth Ann. This is what she wrote: I read all three books she recommended to me, and tell me which readers we had some hesitations about. Tell Me was my favorite one. I have already recommended it to a local family, and it's so nice to have another good selection to recommend for younger readers. I enjoyed The Singer's Gun. It felt very Last Night in Montreal to me in a good way. Kind of off balance and haunting. And then Trafficked. Oi. I agree with you that the squicky factor was high. But I think there are good talking points here about how everyone has a story, and we can build empathy and resist making snap judgments. Also, at least two of my Dress Ember team members said that they joined after listening to the podcast. We are three days away from the official Dress launch on December 1st, and it's been great to encourage those first time advocates as they step out of their comfort zones. Thank you again for the opportunity. It was so much fun and definitely a highlight of my year. Thank you, Ruth Ann, for writing in. You can listen to Ruth Ann's episode anytime. It's episode 154 called Books So Inspiring You Might Be Afraid to Read Them. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts or write on the podcast site at what should I read slash 154. Want a confidence boost? Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. Get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door starting at $22. This is game-changing color you can do at home, and look as if you just came from the salon without the time or expense. At Madison Reed, master colorists blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones to create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. What Should I Read Next listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code READ. Use the code READ, R-E-A-D, at Madison-READ, R-E-E-D, Today's guest, Tracy Thomas, has had a hard time finding her niche in the online bookish community because, as she puts it, she reads like a dad. But I have a hunch lots of listeners will relate to her obsession with true crime and the literary search for truth. We're chatting about books that strengthen your sense of belonging, Tracy's reluctance to read fiction, and the best bad ending she has ever read. If you recognize her voice, there's a reason for that, but I'll let her tell you why. Let's get to it. Tracy, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. It is a delight to talk to a fellow bookish podcaster.
0: Yay. (laughs) I feel the same way.
1: I'm so glad. And I'd love to start there. So lots of us love to read, but I feel like starting a literary podcast really says something about your reading life. But what is that? What does it
0: say, Tracy? I don't know. So I'll kind of tell you how I started or like why I started. Yes, please. Because it doesn't, I don't know if it says much about my reading life, except for that I read books that a lot of people don't read. I love nonfiction and particularly true crime, but also like historical true crime. And so I read this book called Blood in the Water by Heather Ann Thompson last year, 2017, in the fall. And it's about the Attica prison uprising. And I loved it. And I read it in like five days. It won the Pulitzer. It's this amazing book. And I finished it and I wanted to talk to everyone I know about Attica, but nobody knows the real story. Because it's one of those things that like got covered up and this and that. I was like, well, maybe there was a podcast about it. So I Googled her name or I like in the podcast app or whatever. I didn't Google it. There were two podcasts that I found. One was like a super nerdy. I don't even know what you call them book. Experts or, you know, literary analysts, like, you know, people who have a vote for the Pulitzer, like really nerdy people. And then the other podcast was all about the law part of it because it was a law podcast. And I was like, there's nobody talking about the books that I want to talk about in the way that I want to talk about them. So I was like, maybe I'll start a book podcast. (laughs) So that's kind of how it came to be. (laughs) I have so many questions. Go ahead. How did you happen to pick up blood in the water? it was in my wheelhouse. I don't necessarily love the Pulitzer winners for fiction, but I do generally like the nonfiction winners, either in general history or general nonfiction. And so last year I was reading Evicted by Matthew Desmond. And then I was like, oh, I'll just get this book. It's, you know, whatever, 10 bucks. And then it came to my house and it was giant. It's like 700 pages. And I was like, I'll never read this. And then I just picked it up one day and I read it in five days and couldn't put it down. Do you have a theory for why you'd like the nonfiction Pulitzers and not the fiction? Because I don't really like fiction that much. (laughs) Well, that is a great reason. I like fiction that feels like real life. So I'll read something that's fiction. Like The Mothers, I really liked because that just felt mm -hmm. like a real life story. So like that kind of fiction. Like I like The Mars Room because that was kind of like had a plot. There was stuff going on there. Mm Mm-hmm another prison story and yeah I like prison (laughs) I like crime but a lot of the fiction Pulitzers I feel are very like character driven and like it's kind of like people are feeling things and I'd like you to kind of get it moving so like I liked Underground Railroad that has a lot of plot and Uh that one the Pulitzer okay so you don't need like totally wooden characters it's okay for them to feel things As long as they're doing at the same time. Yeah. Like, I don't care about what the room looks like so much. Like, great, let me know where I am. Is it cold? Is it hot? Sure. But like, I don't need to know about every blade of grass and how looking at the grass made the person feel about being in the field. Like, I'm happy to be told... They're in a field. It's very warm outside. They're stressed out because X, Y, and Z. And now we continue forward. And this is why it matters. Yeah. Yeah. This is where we're going. This is why we're in the field, <laughs> which I know I listen to your podcast and I know a lot of your listeners are much more, you know, character driven people. And I've discovered that also on Bookstagram as I started to meet more bookish people. Apparently I don't read like a lot of people who love books. And I feel like I read like a lot of people's dads maybe instead. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm very excited to do a Christmas gifts list for your dad and uncle because I feel like I have all the books they're going to love. <laughs> all right.
1: I feel like right now a lot of people are saying, finally, because I've had it with a beautiful writing. Or maybe yeah. a lot of people's dads are thinking that right now,
0: Tracy. <laughs> either way, yes. either
1: way, I'm confident you're not alone.
0: I'm here for the dads. <laughs> yeah. I know people read the books I read because they're bestsellers and things. I just don't know if the people that read what I read are the people that have Bookstagram accounts. You know what I'm saying? And they're not the people that you know in your real life either. Yeah, that's true. Well, my family reads a lot of nonfiction. Your dad and your uncle. My brother <laughs> and my mom will read I'll, I hand her things I select for her on her book club because they all like a lot of fictiony things and then I'll throw in I'll be like mom you should pick this crazy nonfiction book they're gonna love it
1: and yet true crime is really hot right now there have it been is. excellent true crime books written for the last hundred years maybe more but yeah but as a genre it seems to be really having a moment right now.
0: It does seem to be having a moment, but there is a book called Popular Crime by, I think his name is Bill James, and he's actually a baseball writer, but he wrote a book all about the popularity of true crime, and the book's really interesting, and he basically is like, true crime has been popular forever and ever and ever. We just always think that it's it's getting refreshed because there's always a crime that feels really exciting. He takes it back to the early, like, Seventeen, eighteen hundreds, all the way through, like Sean Benet, Ramsey, O.J. Simpson, and it's a pretty interesting book if you like crime as a thing as opposed to a specific crime. Do you like crime as a thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm fascinated by the crimes, but I'm also fascinated by which crime gets attention. Like Casey Anthony, she was so famous, but she's not the only person who ever killed their daughter. But like she got away with it and she became such a thing. I actually care less about the crime and more about the trial and the cover up and what happens when we start to learn about the crimes.
1: I think it's interesting that the true crime novels that came out 10, 20 years ago Mm -hmm. were marketed as true crime. But if you look at them now with just a little bit of perspective, they're usually filed as histories. And I wonder if there's something about the genre that lends itself to really... You know, it's the critical event through which you see the time and people's beliefs, things like that.
0: Totally. I just finished reading the Executioner's Song, which, if you don't like true crime, don't read it. It's a thousand, eleven hundred pages, so it's a beast. I mean, it's a total classic. It won the Pulitzer, but it is very much of this moment of like nineteen seventy seven, seventy eight in Utah, and it feels like a period piece. And then also it feels so current because it's talking about the death penalty and how we treat criminals, you know, finding humanity in people that we've condemned to die. So it's like they're talking about, you know, like a Malibu truck or whatever. I don't know anything about cars, but they're talking about cars and trucks and like these things and certain things that are feel so 1975, 78. And then they're talking about these bigger ideas of how the media responds to these giant criminal cases that feels like Norman Mailer Wrote it today. Like we could be talking about any of these true crime podcasts that are out. Like the way that the media flocks to these cases and how they get access to criminals and all that. So that's really interesting that you said that. That they become almost like filed in the history section over time.
1: Now you said that nobody is talking about these books the way you want to talk about them. Yeah. Well, how do you want to talk about them?
0: I just want to talk about them like we talk about works of fiction. For example, They're There by Tommy Orange. Did you read it? I did. Did you like it?
1: I don't know if like is the right word. I thought it was so well done. I found it mm-hmm. really difficult to read emotionally and it gave me actual nightmares because it's you know, it's oh. it's violent. I
0: thought he did an amazing job. Yeah. So like a book like that, I feel like we've talked about a lot and there's so much in it. And I think that it's easy for people to discuss books that are fiction because they can engage with a book in a way where they don't have to actually engage with real life. They can feel free to have conversations that we don't always have with things that are true because we're worried about hurting someone's feelings or we're worried about being not politically correct necessarily, but just when something's real life, you're actually talking about real real people. And I think a book like There There, I really enjoyed it because I love a little violence, but also (laughs) (laughs) because it moved fast and it had a plot and we were going somewhere. And while it dealt with characters, like we were clearly headed to that powwow. So like the way that we are able to talk about that book and dissect the characters and talk about what it's saying about greater cultural moments and feelings, I want to talk about nonfiction books like that. Because I think a lot of people think nonfiction is really dry, but it's not. I don't think it is.
1: <laughs> I hear
0: what you're saying, how a lot of people don't feel
1: judgmental about dissecting a fictional character. Right. We feel differently. Right. Do you think it's easier for you to do if you're looking at like historical nonfiction? Or are you totally fine with dissecting a 2018 book about people who are still living? Mm-hmm. I'm fine with
0: that. Okay. I don't know what it is, but I don't have a problem talking about the world the way that I see it. Maybe sometimes I should. Maybe sometimes I should be a little bit more compassionate when I'm talking about people who are still alive or people who experience things. But I think that there's so much there. There's so much life that people have lived. And I think it's important to give those lives the same amount of respect and thoughtfulness that we might give to something that's completely fabricated.
1: Do you feel like there's much to be gained between
0: really diving into that when it is contemporary? I think so, yeah. Yeah. I think just as much as, I don't know that if there, there had been a true story, what would have changed in the way that we would have examined it, except for that maybe less people would have read it.
1: It's possible that we might have felt a little more squeam. Now, obviously we right. come at these books differently, but, yeah. um, <laughs> and that's what keeps it interesting. Yeah. But I can see how I would have a harder time pointing out a real living human's fatal flaw. You know, for example, like, oh, here's the point where they totally went wrong. Right. Although it's probably a better book club conversation if you don't hold back. And that doesn't mean you can't be, you know, kind and gracious and thoughtful. But you just said how it's interesting to talk about things the way they are.
0: Yeah. I, and also to be fair, like on my podcast, we actually do pretty much 50-50 fiction on fiction, but I still try to bring the conversations for the fiction books around to real life things and people. I try to spend less time talking about like this character did this thing in either book, either, in either instance, fiction or mm-hmm. nonfiction and talk more about what is the author trying to get at here? Like why, why did this person do this thing or why are we talking about this person? What does this character mean to the greater experience that people are living in the writing of this book? So, like, for example, we had an episode on The Bluest Eye, which is a fiction book by Toni Morrison. And we discussed racism and classism and sexism and what it means to be beautiful and what it means to be considered beautiful by other people. You know, there's a lot in that book. And we talk about the characters, but we're really using the characters just to dive deeper into the social political, economic relationships with these issues.
1: Right, as Toni Morrison would have wanted you to. I like to think that. (laughs) Have you always been a nonfiction reader or is that something you came to over time?
0: I think I've always been a nonfiction reader. As a kid, you read fiction, but I also... Feel like as a kid, I was reading adult books. Like I, I read kid books. Like I love Charlotte's Web. It's one of my favorite books. But I don't know. I don't. I don't really remember reading. Like I don't know any of those Beverly Cleary things. And I don't. I don't know that stuff that people know. I don't. Is Beverly Cleary even an author?
1: Did I just make that up?
0: Ramona Quimby. Okay, okay. You did
1: not, you did not make that up.
0: <laughs> if you'd made that up, that. then Neil Patrick Harris wouldn't be able to narrate the audiobooks. See, this is all stuff that I know nothing about. Uh, yeah. I don't remember, to be honest with you. As long as I can remember reading, aside from like The Giver and Charlotte's Web, I liked nonfiction. Tell me a little bit about your history as a reader. I don't know. Let's see. I started reading in school and I really liked going to the school library and I liked the library. I thought it was like a cool place, like weird and I don't know, I was into it. And then I read a lot in high school and college for school. And then after college, I was living in New York, which where I I went to school in New York, I was living there. I got really into reading again, like was reading all the time. And then I moved to LA, which is where I am now. And I stopped reading for like three years. Like I read maybe three or four books a year, which was a lot less than what I was reading. And then in 2016, I set a goal to read 12 books a month because I was so disappointed in myself. And I did it. I finished December 30th. I finished my 12th book and I felt like I was a hero. And then in 2017, I was like, I'm going to read 13 books. And I ended up reading 24 and feeling like, this is so great. I'm so glad I'm reading again. And now this year I've read a ton of books, obviously, because I now have a podcast where I need to read a lot. So now I'm like back on my reading game, which is nice. That's fantastic. I like it. I'm glad to be reading. I watch a lot less TV now. I would say I read 75% nonfiction. Now it's probably a little bit more fiction just because, like I said, the podcast and trying to include books that people are excited about reading. And a lot of people like fiction and a lot of people like nonfiction. So I try to keep it balanced and there's good to be had in both kinds of books. So it's not like I'm reading books and being like, this is my nightmare. Like I like reading fiction. I just am drawn mostly to nonfiction.
1: Well, Tracy, based on all that, I'm so curious to hear more about your books You know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately, and then we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Readers, if you love What Should I Read Next, you're going to love being part of our Patreon community. That's where we share bonus episodes, including follow-ups with previous guests, interesting conversations that were cut for time reasons, and one great book style episodes where I tell you all about recent reads that I adore. In addition to the extra audio, you get access to our super secret spreadsheet vault with the full list of all the books guests love and my three recommendations from every episode in an easy-to-search format. And on occasion, we get together live online for Ask Us Anything-style conversations and events like our 90-minute fall book preview and summer reading guide unboxing. Join for all these perks and to be part of the community behind What Should I Read Next. Go to patreon.com slash what should I read next? That's P A T R E O N.com slash what should I read next to become a member today. Patreon.com slash what should I read next?
0: Okay, let's start with your favorites. Tell me about a book you love. The first book that I love, and I know people do this all the time, I love a lot of books. So this is today <laughs> Columbine by Dave Cullen, oh, which makes so much sense based on what you've said. Okay, tell me more. This book is amazing. It's written about 10 years after the Columbine school shooting. And so Dave Cullen, who's an investigative journalist, he goes and he sifts through all the papers and files that have been released 10 years after Columbine because there was a hold put on them. Law enforcement does stuff like that. And so he goes in and he sifts through and he starts talking to people in the town and he kind of figures out what happened here. And he debunks a lot of the things that we associate with Columbine based on the news coverage in 1999. Is that what year it was, 1999 or 2000? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much you remember of Columbine and I don't want to dive too deep into it, but there's the story of a, one of the girls who says that she like prayed to Jesus and then he, they killed her and that there was this whole like Christian narrative around this girl and he kind of like dives into this particular story. And there was another story of one of the children who'd been shot. He came out of a window and this like visual that we saw so much of and he dives into that. But what I love most is that Dave Cullen approaches this book with so much compassion and empathy in a way that I'd never experienced before in true crime. He takes the investigative journalism and he takes this horrible story and he finds a way to meld that with his point of view without inserting himself. You can tell that he loves people and children and that he wants to understand things and he's okay with things being messy and that compassion comes through in this book it works and i can't recommend it more highly and he has a new book coming out about parkland on the one year anniversary of that shooting
1: oh i did not know that
0: yeah i'm a big fan of his and he sometimes writes articles and things but columbine is just it's unreal it's so well done i've not read this I know I should. But you might not like it, and because you're I mean, it's pretty aggressively graphic and it's a tough read. I've heard that it's difficult to get through the beginning. Of
1: course it's a tough read, and yet I'm fascinated by what readers who love it, really admire it, and Dave Cullen's work keep saying that something really interesting about it is the way he shows that things are not What you thought in the Columbine tragedy, media driven stories are almost always wrong. Culturally accepted narratives are often wrong also. And I'm just really curious to see him explore how that happens and why it's so important that we do better.
0: Yeah. Read the book then. You'll love it. I mean, it's exactly that. You said it better than I could. It's so amazing. I did read, I was afraid to just for
1: emotional health reasons, but I did read A Mother's Reckoning by Susan Klebold and Mm. it was hard to read, but I was so glad I read it. It was so carefully handled and well done. Is that one you've read? I've not read that one. I did learn some things that I didn't know about Columbine, but I didn't understand how much she'd be advocating better understanding of and treatment for teenage depression. And is that I feel like it's a book that would be so important for so many parents and educators and counselors to read. And it's not what I was expecting from that book. So it was hard, but I'm really glad that I did read it. And I feel yeah. like I would feel the same about Columbine. And yet there's always something else to read next that I'm not quite as scared of. Don't be scared of Columbine. It's less scary than you think. Well, and I've heard that the beginning is quite graphic, but but then you move on and it gets better.
0: You do. That's true. Okay. Tell me about another book you love, Tracy. Definitely mentioned this in the beginning. Uh, "Blood in the Water" by Heather Ann Thompson, and it's a book about the 1971 Attica prison uprising, similar to Columbine, actually. And I didn't even think about this. She takes these sealed files that have come out, and she does all this research. And this happened in 1971, so there's a lot of trials that have happened since. And she goes through the events of Attica all the way up until the 2000s, dealing with like settlements and lawsuits of not just the prisoners, but also the guards. And she talks about what happened, not just from the prisoner side, but the choices that were made on the law enforcement and government side. It happened in New York. Um, She's talking about Rockefeller that Rockefeller oh yeah that one uh, and all these characters in New York and people that we know I mean famous people pop up throughout the story Bobby Seale founder of the Black Panthers is in it Angela Davis pops up so it's a definitely a civil rights true crime story which are two of the things that I'm the most passionate about in life so it was just like all the things I love it's just so beautifully done oh, that makes me want to go read it. And I'll say this about both those books. As a person who reads a lot of true crime, I have a theory that women, people of color, and men who are not heterosexually identified, which Dave Cullen is one, write the best true crime because they bring a level of compassion And understanding to their writing, but they also bring the ability to call out mistakes that were made by straight white men. And I think a lot of times when straight white men write these books, they have a hard time reflecting on some of the mistakes that were made. And so I find that these kinds of books, these investigative journalists, true crime stories written by people who are, I guess, marginalized, often have insights that you might not get.
1: Was there a specific book you read or a certain moment when you realized
0: you may be onto something with this theory? One that really sticks out in my mind and is another favorite book of mine that I was battling between this for my third favorite book, so I'm glad I get to mention it, is called A Thousand Lives, and it's about Jonestown. And it's the same kind of book. It kind of goes through Jonestown and uncovers things and explains like the quote-unquote real story. And it's written by a woman named Julia Shears, and it's amazing. And then last year, Jeff Gwynn wrote a book about Jonestown, but focused mostly on Jim Jones and those books couldn't be more different and there's a moment in the Jeff Gwynn book where he's talking about racism in Indianapolis and he kind of casually says you know it wasn't that bad they were using derogatory terms for black people I won't say the word more as a descriptor as opposed to as a racial slur and I thought to myself that's interesting using using that word saying that that word wasn't what it was when we all know that that's what it was in 1968 in Indianapolis so kind of like feeling this obligation to cover up for bad behavior that we all already know and accept, you know?
1: Would it have stood out to you as much if you hadn't had the experience of reading the previous book?
0: I just think anytime someone's talking about the N-word and saying that it's not, as racist as we think it is. I think that that's kind of a red flag for me. I'm a black woman. So, and that's just one of kind of a few things. He kind of downplayed Jim Jones's villainness in the book, which I just found to be weird. I've experienced that in other reading of cult leaders or, or other things that have gone on in this country that have been, you know, not great for women or people of color or queer folks. And I think when they're written by the marginalized groups, I think that they do a better job.
1: I agree that you don't need someone to show you how it could be done better to recognize when it's done badly. Yeah. But that pattern is so interesting. Okay. I'm going to look at my bookshelves a little differently
0: now. Look at it. I don't know. It's something I'm just fleshing out and just might be that's what I like to read. Well, this is like our little book club. And what is book club for
1: if not trying out literary theories? There you go. And unpacking them a little bit.
0: Yeah. Okay, my third book. Let's hear it. It's The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. It's an incredible book. So it's the story of the Black migration in America, or also known as the Great Migration. Black folks from the South from 1917 to about the 1970s, A whole lot of black people, millions, moved from the South to the North and the West. And this book is the history of that move. And it sounds super boring. And I put off reading it for years. And I picked it up and... I loved it so, so much. Um, as a black woman in America who is a descendant of slaves, my father came from Louisiana to California in the 1930s, and his story is the story of this book. I mean, there's a character that follows his same path, his family's same path. So I felt really seen in reading this book, and it just made me understand my blackness and my place in America and how I got to California and what that means in a greater tradition, like that it wasn't an accident that we as in black people are where we're supposed to be and we are where we are because of choices that we made.
1: Okay. So this is investigative journalism that is history that matters every minute today, but also that family connection is really incredible.
0: Yeah. I have a little anecdote about that book. Oh, I'd love to hear I was in Texas for a wedding a little bit ago and our cab driver was talking to us and he was saying, you know, I always like to ask my cab drivers where they're from. And this was a black guy. And he's like, oh, I'm from Louisiana. I said, oh, that's so interesting. Is your family still there? And he said, well, some of them, but a lot of them moved to Texas and to California And I was like, right, like in the forties or the fifties, he's like, yeah, how did you know? And I was like, I just read this book. And the reason that it's that way is because the train lines from Louisiana went through Texas to Los Angeles and then up to Oakland. So there are huge black populations in Texas, Los Angeles, Oakland, Seattle, like the West coast that are all from Louisiana. And this book kind of explains how that happened. And black folks that are in New York, many of them came from Florida. And that's because of the train lines and like this book taught me things that I didn't know about black folks in the North and the West, like physically how we got here, but then also the struggles that we went through. And just like when I met that guy, I was like, I know where you're from and I know why you're here. Like I get it.
1: That is so interesting. It also makes me seriously regret that I know I've checked this out of the library twice and haven't gotten past the first chapter because it's enormous. It's enormous and it's a little slow. And I keep thinking, I'm not going to finish. I'm not going to finish before it's due and it's going to cost me you know, 30 bucks in library fines and I'll do it again (laughs) later. And now I'm sorry that later hasn't already happened.
0: Do it. It took me two months to read it. So you might have to get that renew on. (laughs) Yeah, The first third I read, it took me like a month and a half. And then the last two thirds I read in like a week and a half. I never fully sat down with it. I think you need to spend a little bit of time in the beginning to get into it because there's so much there. But Wilkerson, she interviewed like a 100,000 people. Like This book is, the amount of work that she put into it is so admirable and the fact that the book itself is actually good plus Knowing how much hard work went into it, that's something that I'm just super impressed with. Because I think, like, you could research anything forever, but can you actually turn it into a good book? A lot of people can't.
1: No. And, you know, now that you mention it, I'm thinking about some of the popular histories I've read, like by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Mm -hmm. And I find those books fascinating. I'm always so glad. I read them, especially her work. I love her. But I find the first 100, 150 pages of these 600 to 1100 page book really challenging. There's a lot of names. I feel like you have to really get oriented. I don't know as much about the time period as I would like to. But then once I do, you really get rolling.
0: This book is definitely that took me a while. And then once I got in, I was like, can't put it down. So good. All right. Tracy, tell me about a book that wasn't for you. A book that was not for me or stronger words is The Line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu. So this book is a memoir, quote unquote, written by a man who's probably in his 30s now, who after college, he studied border something in college and then decided to go become a border patrol agent. And he did that for like three years. And then he went and got his master's or something and wrote this book. While the idea of the book is really lovely, I found this book to be totally irresponsible and lacking in journalistic integrity. And while I know it's a memoir and that's a lot of the pushback people have given me, I also don't necessarily think that the right thing to do is to force something to happen so that you can write about it. It's one thing if he had been in a situation and something had happened in his life and then he turned around and wrote about it, but for him to insert himself in the border patrol, stay there for three years, The Border Patrol, I understand that they have a job that they have to do, but that is not a glamorous job. And this book really glorifies that work. And I found that to be pretty irresponsible. And I think to be able to fall back and say, oh, it's just my memoir, it really made me angry.
1: So it's more stunt journalism than
0: a true account of the situation you found yourself in because that's life. Yes, totally journalists do work. They go to places where things have happened or they're placed places like war journalists, people who write about wars. Like they're sent there to cover what's going on and sometimes they do become part of the story, right? Like things can happen where you become part of the story but they don't go there with the intention to start a war, to write about a war. Those are two different things and this book to me felt so much like he studied this and then was like, I'm going to go do this so that I can write about it. And then he came back and worked at a coffee shop because that's in the book. He's like, oh, I'm working in this coffee shop right now. I'm like, why are you working in a coffee shop? So you can write this book that you just spent three years doing research on because you didn't say that in the memoir. You just casually say you're in a coffee shop. And then there's other little things that I find to be, in addition to perpetuating stereotypes about immigrants, I think also he really paints himself in this great light. And he talks about like, you know, giving the shirt off of his back to undocumented immigrants who have come across the border. But he never talks about any of the things that he's done really that have been reprehensible and I would have to assume that in any job like this whether you're at a border patrol or even like a school teacher there are things that you do that you aren't proud of like there are things that you do in jobs where you're dealing with people and you're trying to engage with your community where sometimes you make a mistake and he really doesn't have any accountability or reflection on that so I just found the book to be very disingenuous Did you have any reservations before you picked it up? No, I thought it was going to be really good. (laughs) I was very excited about it. A third of the way into the book, I was like, oh my God, this is like propaganda. This is like Border Patrol propaganda. I just didn't think it was going to be so self-congratulatory.
1: It's clear in talking about what you've loved reading that you're drawn to books that really deconstruct the commonly accepted and often wrong or misunderstood narrative. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like this book, which I have not read, but have also checked out of the library and returned. Do not read this book.
0: <laughs> That's my advice to you. If you want to read a good book about immigration and about what it means to cross the border and what that life is like, check out The Devil's Highway by Luis Alberto Urrea. That's an amazing book. Or The Far Away Brothers by Lauren Markham that just came out. Ooh, I don't know that one. Oh my God, it's so good. And this is another part of my theory written by a woman. Just saying, it's very good. And those will be in show notes along with all the other books that we discussed today. Okay, no
1: artificial narratives for you. No, thank you. Is there a way to know that going in, especially now that I
0: would imagine your guard is up a little bit more? No, I don't think there's a way to know. Like, don't you feel like you pick up a book sometimes and you think it's going to be amazing and it's not? And sometimes you pick up a book and you think it's going to be terrible and you end up loving it? Absolutely. But if you had a secret, I wanted to know it, Tracy. Oh, no, I don't have secrets. I tell you everything (laughs) I know. The truth is about the, the Line Becomes River is I also thought it was going to be good because it was published by Riverhead. And I think they do a really good job. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of upset with them about it. Honestly, if I'm being completely honest, I was kind of like, oh, you guys tricked me. You used the goodwill you'd built up with other books. And I thought this would be up to that level. And I didn't think it was.
1: Yeah. Nobody likes to feel tricked as a reader.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tracy, what are you reading now? So I'm currently reading The Ensemble by Asia Gable, which Mm -hmm. I know is none of the things that I said that I liked. Okay. I know that it is character driven, not a lot of plot, fiction book. Wait, stuff happens. (laughs) Oh, it does? And people are really unhappy in the middle. And we know that you like that. Okay, good, because I haven't gotten that far yet, so I'm like, am I going to hate this? How far are you? 90 pages in. Oh, there's lots of behaving badly. Okay, good, good, And good, things oh, do God. actually happen. Oh, thank God. I'm so glad to hear this. Okay, so I'm reading that, and then I just finished A Lucky Man by Jamel Brinkley, mm-hmm. which is short stories, and I liked that. I didn't love it. I liked it. I thought it was good, fine. Okay. Like a solid fine, and that's it. I've, I really only read one book at a time, pretty much. And I'm listening to The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell because I told everybody I've read all his books, and then I t- found out didn't read the first one, so I went back <laughs> listening to it now. <laughs> How is it on audio? It's great. He's great. He reads it. Oh, really? He has a podcast called Revisionist History that's uh-huh. amazing, and. I'd never listened to him on audio before and this is his first book. So he sounds like he's on a sedative because he's like clearly trying to be a good author reading his book, but on the podcast, he's like so lively. So sometimes I'm like, Oh my God, Malcolm sounds so sad. (laughs) If you listen to him on the podcast, he's very like, oh my God, this happened and then this and that. And he's reading from a script, but he's like really doing a show. And I think on this book, because it's his first one, I think he's like trying to be a professional. Do you know what I mean? Like he has this idea of what he's supposed to be doing. So it's just like a little more melancholy sounding than the podcast. This makes me want to go play the sample. Yeah, go play it. It's fun. <laughs> and then listen to the pod. I haven't
1: listened to the current season, but oh. uh, what he does is look at things you think you understand and mm-hmm. just shift it a little. Uh, like I remember this one really interesting episode where he talks about why the food is so much better at one really great, expensive private university in
0: New England oh. mm-hmm. than another. And yeah. it's fascinating. It's so interesting. Yeah. He thinks the way that I like to read for sure. That's what I like.
1: (laughs) Okay, Tracy, when I asked what you wanted to be different in your reading life, you said
0: backlist, backlist, backlist. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. I used to read a lot of backlist stuff. And since I've been engaged with readers through the podcast, I am getting forced to read new stuff, which I don't mind. But I feel like backlist, that's where all the treasures are because all the stuff that's withstood time to get recommended, you know, five, 10, 20 years later, that's like the good stuff. And I generally feel like when I pick up something backlist, I end up liking it. It might not be the best book I ever read, but it's usually pretty good if it's stuck with you for 10 years to recommend, you know? I do. I also read a lot of very new books and I love
1: reading old because I feel like time does much of the hard work of vetting for you.
0: That's right. Exactly.
1: Whereas when I'm thinking about what to read next and looking down my stack of books that haven't been published yet, I'm trying to think like, is anybody going to care in two years?
0: let alone two months. Some of these books I read, I'm like, I haven't even heard a person mention this book since.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, so they don't have to be classics. No. But books that have stood the test of time or will stand the test of time that you've never Mm -hmm. read that perhaps have fallen off your radar. Sure. I know that you said that you read like somebody's dad or uncle, generically speaking, but I just love your books and why you read them. Thanks. I think this is a lot of fun and I also love your self-awareness as a reader. Oh, thanks. That's so nice. (laughs) (laughs) I do have to quote yourself back to you. I just listened to your episode where you do talk about the Mars room that we mentioned uh-huh. earlier. And there's this one moment where you say with glee that you love it because, oh, this ends so badly. <laughs> and you're just so excited. That sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> But you're so self-aware. I feel like I don't even need to tell you what is emerging here in themes because you already know so and can put it into words. Like if it's fiction, you want it to be plot-driven and exciting and to have good momentum. Uh, you want it to feel like real life. You like historical true crime that has some context and some history. And I really resonate with your love of um, books that show you how things really are, which is probably not the way you understood things to be. Mm-hmm. So since I do have your episode about the Mars room still ringing in my ears, in the discussion of that book, you said that for the reader, there's something inherently riveting about a prison escape.
0: Mm.
1: Have you read Hellhound on His Trail? No. The subtitle is The Stalking of Martin Luther King Jr. and the International Hunt for His Assassin.
0: Mm, This is good, Anne. This is good. Well, I really like it for
1: you. So I actually have the book right here because I got it at a used bookstore in Fredericksburg, Virginia last year. This book reads like a thriller. The author is Hampton Sides. And what he does here is he tells both sides of the story. You get what happened from the point of view of Martin Luther King Jr. And from the point of view of James Earl Ray, who called himself Eric Galt at the time that he became a follower of George Wallace and um, traveled to Memphis in 1968. This story begins and ends with a prison escape. And this is a period of time that a lot of people know was extremely important. They feel like they know a lot about it just because it's part of our nation's history. But Sides wrote 459 pages about how you don't really know what happened or why it matters. And since I have it right here, I just want to read you a little tiny bit from the beginning. You'll probably hear me flipping the pages. All writers, sooner or later, go back to the place where they came from. With this book, I wanted to go back to the pivotal moment in the place where I came from. And that was in April 1968, a killer rode into a city I know and love. He set himself up with a high powered rifle a few blocks from the Mississippi River and took aim at history.
0: Mm. I think it checks your boxes. Sounds like it's going to. And you don't, I don't know if I talked about this at all, but I do love books about the civil rights movement and specifically books that have anything to do with George Wallace cuz he's like a giant villain that i just really like reading about
1: uh no you did not mention
0: George Wallace is it weird if i say that's fun no <laughs> i'm into this this is my kind of fun and i this is what i like <laughs>
1: Oh, I was thinking about a novel for you, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it. Do it. It came out in 2013, Tracy. I'll allow it. <laughs> really, if I wanted to recommend books that I could be pretty confident you hadn't read, I should have gone straight for the fiction, huh? Yeah. Well, here's the one I'm thinking of. It's called Burial Rights. It's by Hannah Kent. She's an Australian author. This is her debut. Do you know anything about it? It
0: sounds familiar to me, but I definitely haven't read it.
1: I do have a hesitation here. We'll get to that. But I like it for you because it's a fictionalized account
0: of a real historical
1: event. Is there such a thing as fictionalized true crime? Maybe. (laughs) Probably not. Compared to what you often read, I don't think it's more of the same because the crime goes back to around 1830. And it involved the last case of capital punishment in Iceland. There's a woman named Agnes. She's accused of a brutal double murder. She's been sentenced to death, but there's no prison to wait in. Instead, she's holed up at someone's farm. It's actually a farm she has a history with, which matters in the narrative. The story here is set in that time while she's waiting. Mm. The writing is really skillful. You feel like you're in good hands without it being like really flowery or showy. Mm -hmm. The settings are really important. Her descriptions of the country are really vivid and atmospheric. You can really picture it clearly because of what she says. And also because I think it's incredibly well-researched. It's clear she spent a ton of work getting all the details right. And there are also historical documents to begin the chapter. So you feel like you're right there in reading history. Oh, goodness. Can we go back to the Mars room? Yeah. You mentioned how the idea of what makes someone a is really interesting. You know, I should probably time out and tell people, go listen to the Stacks pod. It says right there in the episode title, the discussion of The Mars Room, since I've now mentioned it like 14 Mm -hmm. times. But you mentioned how you like that discussion. And this story does a great job of probing that question, like, what does make someone a monster? And what's really going on beneath the surface? In the book, the way Kent writes, you see everyone's motivations and their emotions. You don't just see one perspective. And I think you'd enjoy that aspect of it, where it's a little more complicated than it appears on the surface. Here's my hesitation. The writing moves you along, but it doesn't do so super quickly. Like it flows, but it does not race. I think it's engaging enough to keep you reading. It's not super long. It comes together at the end in a really satisfying way, but it's that lack of like strong propelling
0: narrative drive that makes me wonder. Hmm. This might be your reach. (laughs) Oh, I totally think it's a reach. Because it does sound like me, but if it's not like page turnery, I don't know. I want to be in book club and read this with you, and then hear you talk
1: about it. I think that would be (laughs) fascinating. But it's your reading life, not mine, and I don't get to make those calls. I would be very curious to hear what you think, except when I think about what you might think, that's where I go, "Eh." do you like this book? I have more patience for the slow stuff. That wasn't a yes though.
0: Like if we were in a book club together and I sat down with it and I was like, I hate all these things. Would you feel like I need to defend this book?
1: Well, I don't think you'd walk in and say, I don't know. I just didn't like it. What else do you want to know? Because I think there's a huge difference between thinking a book is not well done. Right. And thinking a book is not for you.
0: I I liked it. I thought it was well done, yeah. You're just not sure if it'll work for me.
1: Okay, exactly that's what I was getting at. Perfect, thank you. There can also be a book where you're like, um, you know,
0: it's not particularly well done, but I really love the story. That's totally a valid opinion too. That happens to me more often, I think, that I love the story and I'm like, this book is garbage, but the story is so good. <laughs> <laughs> and there are times and places where that is really
1: all I want in my life. Mm-hmm. A good, fun read? Yes, please. totally. Especially if there's like an airplane or a beach involved. Mm-hmm. Ooh, or, you know, a cozy chair and a fire, that would totally work for me too. Okay, let's go back to your wheelhouse. Now that we've got our reach out of the way. Tracy, have you read
0: And the Sea Will Tell by Vincent Pugliosi? Vincent Pugliosi. Thank you. Yeah. I own the book. My husband's read the book. It's in my house. I think it's too scary for me. <gasps> really? That's what my husband told me. So I didn't tell you this part. I get nightmares, (laughs) like real book nightmares, like my favorite, Blood in the Water. One of the reasons I read it in five days is because I couldn't sleep the first two days because it was so scary. And I love Vincent Bugliosi. I love Helter Skelter. That's one of my favorite, favorite books ever. And I've read like five of his other books. I read his book about the JFK assassination. I read his book about OJ. I read his book about like the divinity of God. I read his book about George Bush. I'm looking at it right now. It's sitting on my bookshelf, but I've never read it because I'm scared of it. You've read all those books by him. <laughs> yes, and I this love is him. the one? Yes, I love him so much. He passed away a few years ago, and I legitimately was sad for like a whole day. He's so great. He's like one of my personal heroes. I love him. I just have never read this one.
1: Do you have any issues with like skimming? The parts that you suspect might give you nightmares later?
0: I don't know. I don't ever think anything's going to give me nightmares. And then I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, oh, I was just getting beat up in Attica prison. Like I can't sleep. Like, you know, you know, I never know what it's going to be. This is helping me want to read it again. I mean, it's just sitting like five feet from me.
1: I mean, I think if you've read everything by him and he's a former Los Angeles prosecutor, you're in Los Angeles- Published 1991, stood the test of time. Okay, so you
0: probably know what it is about. It's about like a murder in a boat on the sea, like a husband and wife or something, right? Yeah. It all
1: goes wrong in a tropical paradise, basically. There's a husband and wife, very wealthy, who have set up literal camp on a Pacific paradise of an island with the intention to stay there for a year when this other couple arrives on the island. A short time later, two of them die. But what the survivors say happened is not what happened, which comes to light years later when a skull, an easily identifiable skull, is found on the island. It has a gold tooth in it. And at that point, it becomes clear that the survivors lied about the fate of this couple. And Bugliosi, who's an L.A. prosecutor, is the attorney who took this to trial. So this is the story of what happened, it's not what you think. What's interesting about this book now, I am not brave enough to read Helter Skelter. I feel pretty confident that would give me nightmares. But when you're reading this one, you're not really sure who should have your loyalty. Like you're not sure how you feel about mm. the people who've been accused. It's very well told. It's definitely discussable. This would be a great one to read with your book club or discuss on a podcast. I feel like when you're reading it, you never quite know if you're on firm ground and it doesn't go the direction you expect. I'm a little nervous about the courtroom drama that goes on and on and on,
0: but you've read all his books. I think you're going to be okay. I like a courtroom drama. That's okay Okay. with me. And I love him and I love his writing. I've owned this book for years. I just have been too scared to read it. But it's totally right up my alley for sure.
1: Okay, I would really ask people
0: who know you in your nightmares and see what they think. But I'm just going to leave it there. I mean, I read books that give me nightmares and then I have nightmares and then I finish the book and then I go away. So it'll be fine. Like, I'll lose two nights of sleep. It'll be no big deal.
1: (laughs) I admire
0: your readerly (laughs) spirit. If it's good, I should read it. I do love him so much, so. Okay, since we're not sure about burial rites, I'd love to give
1: you one more. Ooh, yeah. Have you read Devil in the Grove? No. (gasps) Oh, Devil in the Grove, Gilbert King. I think it has everything you like. So it was published in 2012. You could read one of King's previous works. He does wonderful investigative journalism. So you could read his nice thick 2008 book, The Execution of Willie Francis, if you did want to go back a full 10 years. But Devil in the Grove is so good. I think it's fair to call him a historian who writes extensively about the civil rights movement. Do you know anything about Devil in the Grove? I don't think so, but keep talking about it because I often don't know titles. (laughs) (laughs) This centers around a court case in Florida in 1949. It was known as the Groveland Boys case. Mm -hmm. A 17-year-old white girl claimed that she was raped by four black men. The case went to court three times. King dives into the history, the culture of the community at the time. Really, this is the history of Thurgood Marshall because his role in these cases was so crucial this these were his roots as an attorney before he went on to the national stage he's just one of many important players in this book and the book goes into great detail about many of the individuals involved but it's not easy to read i mean obviously it's sad and it's tragic but it's an incredible account just a really ugly place in time that is nevertheless important, as was what happened during and after these cases. It's been compared to the warmth of other sons, which is a different story, but it has the same kind of respect for history and narrative and details. But what it does is it shows us where we came from in a way that still affects how we're living now. It's not a feel good book, but I know you're okay with that. It's one of those books that I feel like would be so at home on the
0: shelves with other books you really love. Yeah, that sounds totally like me right on. On the nose, Anne, again, always so good at this.
1: Well, you're so clear about what you want (laughs) and what you're looking for. Tracy, it's been a pleasure talking books with you today. You too. This has been so great. Of those three titles, what do you think you may read next?
0: Uh, Okay, let's be honest. I'm probably going to read all three. I think both The Devil in the Grove and The Hellhounds on the Heels of Hell, what's it called? (laughs) (laughs) Hellhound on His Trail. And Hellhound on His Trail both sound like totally me books. I kind of feel like I should have read these already. So I think one of those two and probably just whichever one I get to first, I might be just read them back to back. Who knows? You didn't have a miss. I don't think so.
1: Oh, but if I do, I really want to hear about it because that would be a really interesting book club conversation. Yes,
0: I'll let you know all about where you messed up. (laughs) Like I said, I have no problem telling living people what I think about them. And I want to hear. (laughs) Thank you so much, Anne. This was so fun.
1: Thanks for talking books with me. Of course. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tracy today and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 162, that's 162, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Listen to Stacy's podcast, The Stacks, wherever you get your podcasts. Search for The Stacks by Tracy Thomas and follow The Stacks podcast on Instagram at the Pod. Next week, I'm talking to Ashley Gossens, who started a next level adventurous book club of her own. Here's what I'm talking about. For our November outing,
0: we read The Mushroom Hunters by Langdon Cook. I got in touch with him because he lives in Seattle, and he took us out mushroom hunting. What? He was really excited about it, and he wanted to take us to his, like, special secret mushroom patch. We ended up finding this, like, gorgeous forest with, like, the light shining through the trees. It was magical. (laughs) We found a whole bunch of uh, chanterelle mushrooms, and he gave us a recipe. So we all cooked that night and shared our dishes. And yeah, it was a really great experience.
1: Subscribe to What Should I Read Next now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a thing. You can sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.